often it's non-Americans who fall for American art and help document and keep it alive. Today we revisit my 2004 conversation with one such person, British musician John Wilson. When I met John, he was in his early 30s and had already won numerous awards, worked with Kevin Spacey on Beyond the Sea, Spacey's film about Bobby Darin, and drawn a fan base that allowed him to present orchestra concerts celebrating the classic Hollywood musicals to capacity crowds at London's Royal Albert Hall. John Wilson's popularity has grown even beyond these early triumphs, so I thought it would be fun to revisit this early conversation. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. When John Wilson was around 10 years old, he heard the first Hollywood musical that entranced him, Singing in the Rain. I remember my mother used to do the um, ironing <laughs> with the television on in the background or the radio. And um, I remember actually watching it, watching the opening titles and being struck by the scoring of the music. Even as a, even as a boy, I remember thinking about the richness of the sound of the orchestra and the playing. And, you know, that was the sort of sound I was brought up on because mm. we weren't a classical music family and whatever. My mother used to love watching the movies and if there was a Fred Astaire movie on or if there was a... I know one of those sort of MGM things from the 50s. We'd, we'd have it on, we'd watch it, we'd watch The Sound of Music. And, and I always realised then that this was wonderful music, wonderful playing. Mm. And were you playing piano already? Yes. Well, like you, I sort of taught myself to play the piano. Um, I didn't have any lessons until... I was about five years old and there was just one of these terrible school concerts. <laughs> and uh, everybody... I mean, we were real tots, I must have been four or five, and everybody was given what was called a chime, one note to play, <laughs> you know, and you got E-flat and you got F and little Susan or whoever got D, and, and when the teacher pointed at you, you played your note. Well, me being Wilson, I was at the bottom of the <laughs> alphabet, and they'd run out of chime bars, and they didn't have any left. So I was given the whole panoply of notes. I was given a, an octave and a half glockenspiel with, sharps and flats and I was told that when the teacher pointed at me I was to play this note here but I must have I must have worked it figured it out for myself because by the time the school concert came I just played the whole thing <laughs> myself but I played everybody's parts and this, this stopped everyone talking and just decided that I was musical mm. and then I just taught myself I fiddled around on the piano were your folks musical well they're not professional musicians but my mother has a terrific memory for music mm. and there's barely a song a popular song written in the past 80 years that she doesn't know and does she play it well she plays the piano very badly and she won't mind me saying this <laughs> but again self-taught and it was my mother who sort of guided me around the piano in her own mm. way when i was a when i was a kid and by the time i got to sort of 15 or 16 i was a useful enough pianist to um, play for rehearsals for amateur musical theater things and rehearsals for concerts and what have you. So that's how I got started. Did you teach yourself how to read music? I think I did, yes. I remember actually learning to read music in a week. What happened was, when I was 11, I grew up at the time when we were having sort of industrial action, the teachers were all on strike. And so we all got sort of essential lessons in things such as, you know, maths and English and history and all of that. But any extracurricular lessons, they just didn't happen. 
and the teachers were striking and there was only one teacher who came into the school and that was an old drummer from the Air Force called George and I decided then I would learn to play the drums because he came in once a week um, and I started learning to play the drums and he taught me sort of how to read rhythms so I had a vague idea of what note values meant and then he was doing a musical comedy he was playing in the orchestra for Oklahoma and something came up and he couldn't do it and he sent me along as a sort of terrified 14 year old <laughs> to play in this orchestra for Oklahoma playing the drum kit parts and I didn't have a clue what I was doing and I got there and I remember on the Sunday afternoon looking at this music and having a sort of vague idea what was going on and he said well just, um, you know, listen and <laughs> it'll soon make sense. And, it, you know, by by the sort of Tuesday or Wednesday, it was starting to make sense. It was a week's <laughs> run. And by the time we got to the last night, I could read music fine. I could read the, all the rhythms and the percussion part. I could read the glock and spiel part. And, and it just sort of made sense. And I started writing music fairly soon. Really? After that. Yeah, so... Um, and what kind quickly. of music were you writing? Well, I suppose the first stuff I wrote were, again, sort of incidental music for amateur dramatics and sort of mm. short. We used to do a pantomime every year with the, with the um, amateur things. We had a 16-piece orchestra and I would write ballet sequences and for Sleeping Beauty and terrible rubbish, really. But, <laughs> but I used to enjoy scoring it out for the orchestra. And um, that was the very first work I ever did as an arranger, doing, you know, local amateur musical comedies and then people so the word spread that I could do but I started writing for sort of cabaret acts on ships and things like that so by the time I was 16 I was pretty much working pretty much all the time That's interesting that you didn't wind up taking lessons when you showed such obvious talent for this Did you think I want to go out and take lessons or did you think that will inhibit me in some way? It's, it's fascinating Well I was taking there, was, there were class lessons in music at school which everybody took mm. um, and I was always very curious. So between the sort of class music lessons and my own natural curiosity, I found out an awful lot, really. I suppose I should have been given piano lessons. My mother and father did ask the um, music teacher at school, should I have piano lessons? And they said, well, just let it happen naturally. Um, that may or may not have been the right advice to this day. I don't know. Had I been given piano lessons as a, as a tot, I, would, I think I would probably be a pianist now a concert pianist, because I could play the piano. By the time I was sort of 16, I, I could play the piano, I, I suppose, well enough to fool people that mm. I was a, a pianist. And I want to develop one own technique. I think to a large extent, you know, m most musicians are self-taught, mm. even those who've had lessons. You must have come across this. Yes. Um, I find that all my colleagues who I work with, I'm lucky I work with all the best players in the world now, and the best players in London in particular, and they've had lessons and they have a technique, but that's the basics. That's just the very basics. The rest of it is sort of natural musicianship, which comes through listening mm. and just doing. There's nothing to substitute that. But it's interesting that the first thing that, that you noticed when you heard that first musical was the orchestra. So you were already thinking in that direction. Mm, I was orchestra conscious, I suppose, from an early yes. age. And the, the sound of the orchestra has always been my deepest need, if you like, musically. I'm not terribly interested in piano players or, you know, I, even though I play the piano myself and I, I still do play the piano. 
people still pay me to play the piano. Would you believe it? Uh, <laughs> I've heard you play over I, the phone, but I've heard you play. <laughs> and, um, I was always more interested in, in everybody playing together, the sound mm. of the orchestra. John Wilson Orchestra on the title track from his CD, Shall We Dance. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. I talk with John about his early fascination with movie musicals. I remember when I was watching these old films, I was always fascinated by main titles and end titles because the orchestra was at its fullest and you know, mm. the arrangers got a chance to, to show. It comes back to what I was saying about singing in the rain. You know, that opening title. I remember all of those. I think I had a few albums um, when I was a kid. I had this High Society album, which is all very ironic because they're the very musicals now that I'm working on. Yes, exactly. And reconstructing. I, yes, talk about that project because it sounds fascinating. And Herculean, I might add. It's a, yeah, it's a, it's, a big, it's a big job. When I was, I've, I mean, I've been, I should go back a bit because I've been running my orchestra for eight years now, the John Wilson Orchestra, and we've been emulating as much as we can the old studio orchestras of the sort of 40s and 50s, the MGM, the 20th Century Fox. It's a sort of a big band with strings and conventional woodwind. And we've been doing concerts at all sorts of venues in London. We make a couple of records a year. And we the staple repertoire was, I suppose, the arrangements of Nelson Riddle. We do the Sinatra things with a voice singer and... Billy May and Gordon Jenkins and a lot of sort of... We, we used to play a lot of lounge-type music, mm. you know, that sort of Les Baxter stuff. And then as I became more and more 
interested. Well, I didn't say more and more. Interested. I was always interested in film music, and I'd done a lot of movie music concerts. You know, John Williams and Miklos Rose mm. and all of that stuff with with other orchestras, with with orchestras around the country. Um, but I'd always known about these MGM musicals, and I'd always known that the music had been destroyed because in 1969 the MGM were taken over by a different company and the music library was used as landfill for a golf course. So all of the wonderful music that Conrad Salinger had orchestrated, Andre Previn, Johnny Green, you know, all of these, but the entire music library, all in manuscript, all irreplaceable, was all, it was all destroyed. And so the fact that this had been destroyed, I mean, I just thought, we'll never get to play that. And then somebody told me, and I can't remember who told me, I think it might have been John Waxman, the son of Franz Waxman, the composer, that there did exist somewhere some short scores for the MGM films because for copyright reasons they had to keep a short score of every film. And I did a bit of investigation and this led me eventually to uh, Warner Brothers who owned the Turner Entertainment Company's archives. And sure enough, they have, I think, 90% of all of the short scores for the MGM films. I mean, not dramatic pictures as well as musical ones. And these short scores vary in sort of completion and detail enormously. The Wizard of Oz, for example, is about half complete, i.e. half the numbers are missing. And it's written sometimes just on one stave, the melody line and the chord symbols, which are no use to anybody. But later films like Gigi or It's Always Fair Weather are virtually complete, sometimes entirely complete, with the score condensed on seven staves with details of instrumentation and much, obviously, much easier to work from. Mm. So I had, I made contact with the archivist at Warner Brothers, started corresponding with him and Neith Adams and another guy called George Feltenstein, who's a great expert on the MGM musically, absolutely exhaustive knowledge. And we, between the two of us, we decided which films I should start looking at with a view to reconstructing the full scores. And I chose my favourite movies. I did Singing the Rain, High Society, It's Always Fair Weather, uh, which is Previn's, Gigi, uh, The Bandwagon, an American in Paris, all of these things. And um, I started about two years ago to reconstruct the full orchestral scores from these sketches and from listening over and over and over again to the soundtracks, which have been newly remastered, which is a gift because mm. you can hear so much more than you could. And um, when I'd finished about an hour and a half's worth, um, I started planning this concert which happened last year at the Royal Festival Hall um, and I put this gig on with my orchestra augmented to 87 players I might add with a choir of 203 singers oh my god we did the world <laughs> we did the world premiere in concert of the great highlights from the MGM musicals Suntan, wind blown, honeymooners at last alone, feeling far above power. Oh, how lucky we are. 
hand you give to me True Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. My guest is British conductor John Wilson. I asked John how he gets an orchestra to swing. I think the answer to that is you can't make an orchestra swing. I mean, not a symphony orchestra. Symphony orchestras don't swing, and people try to make this happen, and the results are invariably stilted. Because once you get past a certain number of players, it is difficult to get that sort of agility. And, 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 and more importantly, one needs the right sort of players. My, my orchestra is modelled on the old studio orchestra, mm. so my drummer is a jazz drummer who can obviously read music and who has a sense of playing within dance bands and orchestras, as is the bass player. I mean, the, 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 the core rhythm section of my orchestra, they're all jazz players. You, they, go, they play at Ronnie Scott's and they do they back famous American soloists when they come over. But at the same time, over the past eight years, we've all gotten used to playing together in the context of an orchestra, following a conductor and playing with other people. And it's been a big learning curve. But as I say, that learning curve has been reinforced by their jazz backgrounds. I'm, I really have to stress that because there are so many sort of light music orchestras with rhythm sections who are perfectly capable, but they just haven't got that last dance of jazz feeling, which is why I say the MGM orchestra sounded so wonderful because they had Frank Carlson playing in the drums who, who was Woody Herman's drummer and the first heard and and the the rest of the players in that orchestra were all they'd all been on the road with Dorsey and Benny Goodwin in the thirties before the forties before they went to the West Coast. And I've done the same thing with my orchestra. I've modelled it on those sorts of orchestras. My trombones, four trombones in the orchestra are all great dance band soloists, they're all steeped in the tradition of Dick Nash and Tommy Dorsey and Herbie Green and all of these great players. I think of that time that you're talking about it because I know you're a Fred Astaire fan and I'm a huge fan of Fred and all those movies and people don't talk about that as necessarily jazz, but jazz was the music, the popular music, so it influenced everything. And I know... I think jazz and popular music were much closer together mm. then than they are now. I mean, mm -hmm. everything's drifted apart now. Classical music and popular music were much closer together than for that mm. matter, really. I mean, it would be... It's, if, it's not really that far a stretch from going to hear a Tchaikovsky ballet as it is to watching Fred and Ginger. It, you know, in terms of harm, harmony and melodic content, mm. I think if you look at Harry Warren, who was one of my great heroes as a songwriter, he idolised Puccini. 
Now compare that to what's happening now in pop music. Not that I can make that many comparisons because I don't listen to it and I don't really know much about it. But one can't avoid hearing it. You walk up the street and it's come out of car windows and everything. And it's just a totally different art form. It's a totally different business. It means it's derived from totally different sort of principles. Mm. Uh, so I don't... I think, say, 50, 60 years ago, it was just music was m- music. And mm. as you say, Fred Astaire was a dancer and... I think there was, there's always been jazz and jazz. There's always been sort of hardliners. Right, right. But there's that, that feeling throughout those movies that Fred did. And what's your favorite of the Fred and Ginger things? My favorite of the Fred and Ginger movies is The Barclays of Broadway, mm-hmm. which is the only movie they ever made in color. It's their last movie, mm-hmm. which has got a wonderful score. The way you wear. Your hat, the way you sip your tea, the memory of all that. No, no, they can't take that away from me. The way your smile just beams, the way you sing off key. The way you haunt my dreams No, no, they can't take that away from me We may never, never meet again On the bumpy road to love Still I'll always, always keep the memory Dance till three The way you've changed my life No, no, they can't take that away from me No, they can't take that away Fred Astaire on a 1949 recording of They Can't Take That Away From Me, from the movie The Barclays of Broadway. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired.
I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. Our show is made possible in part with generous support from Steinway & Sons and from East Hampton Indoor Tennis. Eight indoor and 20 outdoor courts in a quiet, beautiful park-like setting. Visit ehit.ws for more information. For a schedule of upcoming programs, visit our website at jazzinspired.com. You can download podcasts of Jazz Inspired free on iTunes and email us at info at jazzinspired.com or visit us on Facebook and Twitter at Stride Queen. To find out more about my CDs and where I'm touring and to sign up for our email newsletter, visit judycarmichael.com. Additional support is provided by Jazz Times Magazine, providing entertaining and provocative coverage of the jazz scene since 1970, on the web at jazztimes.com. We're revisiting my 2004 conversation with British conductor-orchestrator John Wilson, who is recreating and archiving the musical scores of the classic Hollywood musicals. I commented to John that there are very few musicians who are comfortable in the worlds of classical and jazz. I think generally you'd be on a safer thing if you asked a dance band trombone player to do a Brahms symphony than you would if you asked a symphony trombone player to do a Benny Goodman number. I think generally speaking jazz players are that little bit more flexible. Mm. I think possibly because they all start from usually in this country, from part, part of you playing conventional music, they, mm. they come up through youth orchestras and wind, mm-hmm. wind, wind mm-hmm. orchestras and what have you. That said, I work with symphony orchestras and I take sometimes five or six players from my own orchestra. Mm. We hook them onto the sections, first trumpet, first trombone, and it's often very... We can hardly tell the difference between, a, you know, the Basie band and the symphony orchestra if you've got the right... If, if, right. It's, if it's well rehearsed and if mm. it's, you know, they're playing the right... So it can be done. It can be done. Again, choice of players is, is all important. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Talk about your big band, because I heard it in one context, doing a uh, more of a 60s kind of, or Nelson Riddle direction, but you do all kinds of things with your big band as well. Well, the big band is, I suppose, the core of the orchestra, mm. if you like. We add strings onto it as necessary. And it's the same 17 guys. We're all used to playing together. It's a standard big band lineup, five saxes, eight brass. And our repertoire ranges from sort of society dance band music of the 1940s through to that sort of, one would call, lounge music of the 60s. Nelson Riddle got a lot of Nelson Riddle in the library, got a lot of Robert Farnon. Paul Weston, um, we've just recorded some Paul Weston um, with the dance band and um, with strings on that. And I suppose the good thing about working with a dance band the big band, as you call it, I don't, don't dance band. <laughs> uh, same difference, is that we get to play for dancing. Uh, at least twice a month we play. Really? For, for, for live dances, yes. And um, I think that's really important because that's the primary reason for a dance band to exist. It's great to do concerts, but to play endless medleys of, you know, foxtrots and quick steps, well, with great polish and style, is, is as thrilling as anything else mm. that we do. If it hadn't been for dancing, then a lot of that music wouldn't have existed. I mean, a lot of, I mean, the whole of American popular music culture is somewhere along the lines based on dancing, or a lot of it is anyway. Basie used to always say that was a compliment when people 
would dance because a lot of the musicians had evolved with jazz musicians that they didn't want people dancing. And I know I've always read that Basie said that it was a compliment that people wanted to dance to your music. So he thought of it exactly yeah, yeah, the same absolutely. way you I'll, are. I'll go along with that. Do you think it's more popular here because it's an American form, some of the things you're talking about, than you've talked to American yes. musicians, so you know that it's almost impossible to have this kind of band working in the States. I've heard that. I'm surprised. And I heard that the Rainbow and Stars, didn't they have a dance band there? That doesn't exist anymore. No. It's such a shame. There is a vogue at the minute for certain American things, like Dean Martin. What's the name for those three? Dean Martin and The Frank Rat Pack. Oh, yeah, that's that's everybody's doing the Rat Pack. You can see that. At the mm-hmm. And that whole sort of hip American thing is sort of back in vogue. I think that the condition of popular music at the minute, people go out of an evening and they go to see a show and they'll go to a concert and perhaps as, as we've started playing for sort of in restaurants and things people go for dinner and they hear the orchestra and they realize that this is something that they can't get anywhere else popular music's sort of for it's reached sort of extremes if you like if my sister listens to 
pop music. She's a lot younger than I am. She knows all the people. But there are people my age, say, 30s, mid-30s, and they'd quite like to sort of explore this. And so there's a sort of fairly youngish audience with a bit of disposable income, like to go and listen to this music. And it's sort of... They can see... They can. I mean, it's so... Dur- I mean, it's been going for sort of 50, 60 years. People can see what's good about it. You know, the great tunes of George Gershwin and Irving Berlin and Harold Arlen, you know, they they wear very well. And if you play them well, and people are always going to want to listen to it. So is your audience younger? Yeah, well, it's mixed. We have all different ages, but there's a sort of... You would say you've got a, a large, older audience and then an, an, an equally large sort of audience in their sort of 30s. Mm. That's this, it seems to be those two sort of groups. Well, that is happening in the States. At least I see that because I play a lot of colleges and I'm seeing just what you're talking about is that the younger people now that are listening to the pop music are looking for something richer. That's right, yeah, because there's not much in it really, is there? Exactly, exactly. I always say that they're not... 30 years from now, they're not going to look at their sweetheart and say the first time, remember the first time we kissed a gangster rap. Yeah, no, you can't stoop doggy dog or whatever. No, I don't think it's the same as thinking of the first time you heard Sinatra or something like that. South of the border, down Mexico way. That's where I fell in love When the stars above came out to play And now as I wander My thoughts ever stray South of the border Down Mexico way She was a picture In old Spanish lace Just for a tender while I kissed the smile upon her face Cause it was fiesta And we were so gay South of the border Mexico way Then she sighed as she whispered manana Never dreaming that we were parting And I lied as I whispered manana Cause our tomorrow never came South of the border I jumped back one day There in a veil of white By the candlelight She knelt to pray The mission bells told me That I mustn't stay South of the border, Mexico way. The mission bells told me, ding dong, that I must not stay. Stay south of the border Down Mexico way I, I, I
talk about your movie with Kevin Spacey because you were certainly the right person for the job on this. How did you two get together? Well, the movie Kevin's making at the minute is a movie musical based on the life of Bobby Darren. And my agent had heard that this was happening, and so was the agent for my orchestra. He wrote to Kevin Spacey and said, I hear you're making this film, and you're recording it in England. I, you must check out me. So I didn't know anything about this, but apparently this is done. And I met Kevin Spacey and took along a bunch of records, and uh, it was only supposed to be a ten-minute interview, but two hours later, I came out, and the next day I was told I'd got the job, which was a thrill, because where else are you going to get the opportunity to work in such detail over an extended period of time with the music that you really love? Mm. And so often in musical projects like this, where the movies are concerned, the music's actually the thing to think of last, mm. and they spend a fortune on costumes and what have you. But here was someone, you know, Kevin took artistic responsibility for the whole project, every aspect of it, and here was someone who was absolutely passionately concerned about getting everything dead right down to the last fourth trumpet player, everything. And because I have an orchestra which specialises in that sort of thing, here we are recording music written in the 50s, recorded in the 50s. So we spent a couple of months reconstructing all the original scores and then two weeks at EMI recording everything and we had a lot of time to get it absolutely right, a lot of elaborate dance routines, which look wonderful on the finished film, comes out this November. I was very proud of the orchestra because... They really, I mean, they play well normally, but they played extra well on that. <laughs> Which you always hope Absolutely. in a situation like that. Was this a very different process for you throughout than other films that you've been involved with? Yes, I mean, I've done quite a lot of films, but it's the first musical film mm. that I've done. So the first difference is, of course, that all of the music is pre-recorded before anything is shot. Mm. No, no film is shot because you, you pre-record all the songs and all the dance routines, and then they're played back over the set when filming begins. And so from that point of view, everything had to be planned meticulously, number of bars, how long does this have to be? Mm. And um, Kevin was very well prepared for that. I mean, he thought of his camera angles and what was going to be happening, so we worked together on that, and as was Phil Ramone, who produced the soundtrack. He was in the box as we were playing. And so... We spent a great deal of time selecting numbers. I mean, I think Kevin did most of that sort of work, selecting all the material. And I think we recorded probably a good 25% more than we actually, you'll see in the finished film. Mm. We were very well covered. And recreating, I don't know if the, the actual creative process was that different because ultimately we were recreating a period from the sort of 50s and 60s, which is what I've done with those MGM Musicals. I suppose the scope of the Darren film was wider. That was a little different because we had to... Bobby Darren's career went from sort of teen idol to singer of standards in the Sinatra mold to sort of folk song protest singer and then back to the sort of nightclub act. So it sort of came full circle. So we had to widen our stylistic parameters. Mm. Somewhere beyond the sea Somewhere waiting for me My lover stands on golden sands And watches the ships that go sailing Somewhere beyond the sea She's there watching for me 
If I could fly like birds on high Then straight to her arms I'd go sailing It's far a 1958 recording of Bobby Darren on Beyond the Sea, the title of Kevin Spacey's movie on Darren's life, for which my guest, John Wilson, acted as musical director. John talked about his CD, Moonlight Becomes You. We made this last year. It's um, part of a series of CDs we're doing on the Vocalion label. We do two a year, devoted to the work of other arrangers. This one is a sort of tribute to the orchestrations and the genius of Mr. Paul Weston, who's a very famous American arranger, married to Joe Stafford. I was in touch with Paul's son, Tim, who revealed to me that he'd everything his father had ever written in the library. For the first time in my life, I didn't have to spend weeks on end with headphones on transcribing the arrangements, because here they already were on the shelf, and... Um, these were photocopied and sent over to me, and I chose 23 of my favourite Paul Weston charts, and um, we recorded them with the orchestra. And it's um, the sort of repertoire we sort of revel in, I suppose, because it's a combination of lovely old dance band arrangements and beautiful writing for strings. Um, sometimes we have just the band on its own, sometimes we add the strings. More often than not, it's the sort of full orchestra. Mm. And Weston's writing was... Very clean cut, very elegant, never cluttered, and had great sort of personality to it. So mm. we enjoyed, I think, I think the record sort of speaks for itself. You can hear it, how much we enjoyed it when you... Mm.
One of the other albums in this series of um, records devoted to the work of other arrangers features some tracks done by Richard Rodney Bennett, who I believe is well known in New York. He often appears at cabaret venues as a sort of singer pianist. And um, I have a great working relationship with Richard. We've worked together for years. We worked together on his film Gorman Gast, which won the Ivan Novello or the BAFTA Award or something for Best Film Score. It's a terrific score. He's a, a real genius when it comes to writing music for films. And um, I assisted him on that, did the orchestrations with him. And then we made this record, I think, because he was visiting for the film, so we thought, well, whilst he's over in England, we might as well make a record. During the 1970s sort of and 80s, he was quite active writing charts for the old BBC radio orchestra, which sadly doesn't exist anymore. And... Um, he gave me a pile of charts he'd done on various tunes, which he meant a lot to him. I'm, I'm looking at the listing now. Miss Otis Regrets is a lovely one, and he shares my enthusiasm for the music of Michelle Legrand. Mm, me too. Who's a wonderful arranger as well as a composer, and we recorded an arrangement Richard did for strings of You Must Believe in Spring. Mm. For you, what makes the best movie score? In general, what do you hear besides? I mean, we're talking about orchestrations and arrangements and all those things, but what else for you? Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, movie scores have changed so much. Mm. I mean, I love now Voyager, for instance, in a Max Steiner, wall-to-wall, -wall, Wagner, 
I mean, what, what was it that Davis once said? Do I come down the stairs with or without Max Steiner? <laughs> yeah, and I'm a sucker for that, and I spent two years reconstructing Gone with the Wind, mm. which is, I think, the most remarkable film score ever written. But anything which sort of illuminates the drama, film scores aren't as lush as, as they used to be, but they're infinitely more sophisticated, I think, in the hands of real master. Mm. It's always interesting to me, the irony of it, because... The best film scores, you don't notice. It's just advancing and enhancing. Mm-hmm. And if you ever, I mean, I've been involved in movies. And if a scene isn't quite working, it can often be made, when it hasn't music, it can often be made to work with mm. music. It can ruin it as well. Mm-hmm. And expand or shrink the time. I've had people tell me that, filmmakers, that I'm sure. something that's too long, yeah. the music will actually make it seem shorter, which is interesting. It's such an integral part of the movie yeah. experience. You have a wonderful stage presence, and it's interesting to me that the people that have told me when I've been here in London performing myself, and they'll say, I'm going to see John Wilson. Now, they say it in a way that's very personal. They're going to see you, and it's a big compliment because they don't say, I'm going to hear John Wilson play the music of etc. or something like that, and it's something that I always appreciate in concerts, whether it's jazz, classical, or anything, I like it when the person in charge, as it were, connects and makes a personal connection. Sure. Is this something that you have been comfortable with from the beginning, talking to the audience? Oh, no, I remember the first time I did it, I was terrified. I was conducting for an antiques fair in Hertfordshire, of all places, and the compare wasn't there, and they said, oh, you'll have to introduce the things yourself, and I nearly froze to the spot. I thought, I can't do that. I mean, I was only 20, but, but I did it. And I cracked a few jokes without really meaning to, and people started to laugh. And, <laughs> and I suppose that was then I realised that it wasn't such a trauma. Mm. And uh, here am I, you know, in, in sort of deepest rural Hertfordshire, an antiques fair, speaking in a thick northern accent. <laughs> half, half the audience probably couldn't understand me and um, I realised of course then being a band leader stroke sort of conductor of light music you have to introduce everything yourself and I enjoy talking about the music I enjoy sort of telling people about what we're playing and um, I think it's very important and I do it in symphony concerts as well and it's 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 interesting I, I mean I I, I I can't see myself I have no idea how I come across but I do get a lot of fan mail and I get a lot of people who come to my symphony concerts in all parts of the country because they seem to say that I make the music more approachable. Yes, and it is, and I think that's a great compliment, and it does, it opens up the audience for it. Everybody wants to feel that they have an entree into it, especially if they're not familiar with it, which a lot of people are. Which is fine as long as the music comes first, because there are an awful lot of gimmicky sort of 
people around them. Oh, no, and I don't mean it that way. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just everybody likes someone to turn around and say, sure. hi, glad you're here. Yeah. Because it's, <laughs> it, it, it can be a tremendously stuffy atmosphere, that of the concert hall. Mm. I mean, you're, speak, you're, you're sitting opposite somebody who falls asleep often <laughs> in concerts, so anything to liven it up. What do you want to do that you haven't done? Oh, my word. Do you know, I just want to um, keep working with my orchestra, with other orchestras, doing concerts and broadcasts and movies. I'm doing exactly what I want to do. You know, I'm busy, busy enjoying doing it. Um, I, I don't think I have any specific ambitions. I'd like to work in America, actually, now that you ask me. Um, because I suppose that's the home of all the music that we play. And whilst we're sort of celebrated over here for doing so, it'd be quite nice to either take my orchestra to America to work with American orchestra. I've got mm. so many musical musician friends in in America. Mm-hmm. That that's an that's an ambition I've yet to realise. Otherwise, I'm um, and, and continue with these MGM scores. I'd like to do that. That's that's going to take me at least like 160. I mean, well, it's good you can bring those over to America and play it for all of us. Yes, I'd love to. I think there's the opportunity. This is fantastic. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks I've really enjoyed me. it. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to my conversation with British conductor-arranger John Wilson. I hope you'll join me here next time when I talk with another creative person about how jazz has inspired their life and work. I'm Judy Carmichael, the host and producer of Jazz Inspired. My production engineer is Curtis Heidolf. You can download podcasts of Jazz Inspired from iTunes or at TalkShoe.com. Our opening music was Airmail Special, and the mid-break music is a smooth one from my CD, High on Fats and Other Stuff. The closing music is Old Fashioned Love from my CD trio. I'm on piano with Mike Hashem on sax and Chris Flory on guitar. Judy Carmichael's Jazz Inspired is made possible with generous support from our listeners and Steinway and & Sons and Sag Harbor Florist. Visit sagharborflorist.net. Additional support is provided by the American Hotel in Sag Harbor, New York. Learn more at theamericanhotel.com. You can download podcasts of Jazz Inspired free on iTunes and email us at info at jazzinspired.com or visit us on Facebook and Twitter at Stride Queen. <laughs>